forgot to mention earlier, we will be eating at 12 o'clock tomorrow. <laughs> uh, now, last week, if you can remember back that far, uh, we began the final two verses in Proverbs chapter 11. And those verses are verses 30 and 31. And we looked at the, the bottom line, really, the final aspect of, of what God's salvation really should produce in our lives. And we know that is to bear fruit. Uh, God saved you and he saved me for one reason. And I understand that everybody here today is on different levels of your spiritual growth. I get it. I understand that. But you need to know that fundamentally God saved you uh, for one purpose, and wherever you're at in that level, <clears throat> your goal should be in time to get to the point where you re- reproduce yourself uh, into others. I showed you how that Israel in the Old Testament, and then I showed you how that the church in the New Testament uh, were to bear fruit for God. It's a great study, one of the greatest studies found in all of the Bible. You'll also remember I reviewed for you those five spiritual stages that the nation of Israel went through as uh, God called them out, formulated them, and brought them to a place where they were to bear fruit. And then I also showed you that the church uh, goes through the exact same five stages in history. And in both cases, we now know that uh, it ends in a failure of of Israel and the church to fulfill that great commission that God had given Israel to bear fruit. And, uh, And then I gave you an introduction to today's message on a biblical-based New Testament soul winning by showing you what soul winning, first of all, is not. Uh, And today, uh, along with last week, I'm going to show you what it is. Uh, Christianity has defined, misdefined so many things today. We live in a day and age where because we have lost the Bible and we've lost sight of what the Word of God says as God's absolute standard, that we now have lived in a world of a lot of misdefined concepts in Christianity. And soul winning is certainly one of those, and uh, we're going to bring it back online this morning uh, with the Bible. Now, we know uh, and understand that winning people to Christ is by a byproduct. We talked about this last week. It's a byproduct of your intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit of God. It's not a program. It's not some book that you read. It's not some format that you follow. It's the relationship you have with the Holy Spirit of God, and when you're one with Him, uh, when you know Him, and you have that intimate spiritual relationship with Him, uh, you will bear fruit through a natural process of that relationship with Him. You remember I've told you many, many times that um, there are seven things that you lose when you lose your Bible. And when the devil takes your Bible from you and you don't have an absolute standard anymore by which you go by and by you judge things by and you run everything through, and that's what's happened today, you lose seven things. One of those things, and we've talked about it many times, one of those things is your ability to have a relationship with the Holy Spirit of God. So then man now uh, has to make soul winning a program. He has to come up with all kinds of ideas and concepts Uh, He has to come up with some man-made method that will appear that what they're doing is really Bible-based. And I also gave you the uh, probably one of the greatest single verses on understanding how soul winning works not only in your own personal life, in your family, but also in our church, found in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 24, where it says, and I'm going to read it again because it was so vitally important, uh, for who will hearken unto you in this matter? But as his part that goeth down to the battle, so shall his part be that tarrieth by the stuff. They shall part alike. Now, I want you to remember that verse this morning because it simply says that there, you know, as a husband and wife team, as a family team with your children, or as men and women in this church, we're a team. And not everybody always goes down to battle. Not everybody gets on the firing line all the time. Some people have to stay back and stay by the stuff. Now, you're in here this morning, and you're uh, getting the Word of God, and you're in the forefront of it, but there's people in the back that are taking care of your kids. They're staying with the stuff. I've seen some of you when somebody went to Lincoln or somebody did this over here or got involved in this and they had children. You stayed home and kept their kids because they could go. 
You see, that's a team concept. The Bible says that when you do that, when we work as a team, and I want you to see this today, when we work as a team, doesn't matter who wins that person to Christ, Bible says we all part alike. You're as much a value in that person getting saved as the actual person who sat down and opened up the scriptures. That's a foreign concept today, but it's one that I want you to remember. Now today, I told you I was going to take you inside the Bible, and I want to show you the defining passage uh, in the Word of God on soul winning. And I'm going to tell you, I've told this many, many times, the defining passages in the Bible are absolutely imperative for you to get down at some point in your life. It keeps you from making up your own interpretation of what this thing means. It shows you very clearly how the Bible defines things. And today I want to, I want to give you eight definitions or eight concepts or eight teachings or eight doctrines in the Bible, however you want to lay it out, of what it takes to be a biblical New Testament soul winner. A flourishing branch off the olive tree, which we now know from Romans chapter 11 is the tree of life, which is Christ, that produces fruit. If you want to bear fruit, if you want to do it right, if you want to get to the judgment seat of Christ and have a full reward, then this message is for you. Now, our verse today, uh, the same as last week, will be Proverbs chapter 11, verses 30 and 31. And uh, that's where we're going to start. We'll move from there very quickly. But it says, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. And he that winneth souls is wise. Behold, the righteous shall be recompensed in the earth, much more the wicked and the sinner. Now, Father, help us today as we come to your word. We love you. These good people have come out today and traveled many miles to hear the word of God. We pray, Father, that you'll take this unworthy servant and open up my heart and my mouth and my ears and my eyes and that I might put forth the things of God that uh, will change their life and help them uh, be better in their relationship with you. We ask you, Father, forgive us where we fail thee and put us under your blood that we might receive all that you have for us today. And we'll be careful to thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, the ending of this great chapter is filled with uh, principles for our Christian life. And at the end of your Christian growth process, when you get to that point, of course, you never really stop growing, but when you get to a certain point in your life, you now begin to bear fruit. And you understand what it means and how important it is to reproduce yourself. And uh, you realize that that is the basic purpose to why God has saved us. Now, I want you to take your Bibles this morning. I want you to move all the way over to the New Testament to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Now, I, I don't know what you all know about the Bible, but Acts chapter 8 is the first time in your Bible when a Gentile gets saved just like you and I got saved. I don't know if you know that or not. Now, I know that there were people saved in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, but did you ever see that? That's a salvation to Israel. Uh, you over there in Matthew chapter 10, when he sent out the, the, the disciples out and the apostles out to, to win them, he told them not to go to Gentiles. You're a Gentile. That's not your salvation. And I know that you get over there in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, and somebody gets saved, you know, baptism or repentance, but that's for Israel. I know you got a lot of water dogs running around today thinking that you get baptized, you go to heaven and all that stuff, but that's not true. That verse there is not to you. That verse is to the Jews because they crucified the Messiah. You've got to be able to rightly divide your Bible. No, if you want to find your salvation and my salvation, and you want to see it as it really happened, you've got to go to Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, God up in heaven pans down that big old TV camera he's got, and he records for you and for me in the Bible exactly what happened when this man got saved, but it's exactly the model of what happened when you and I got saved. It records all the necessary things that you and I need to see. It lays out all the aspects for you and me to be a biblical New Testament soul winner, led by the Holy Spirit of God to win souls, like Proverbs chapter 11, verse 30, 31 says. Now, don't get discouraged today if you've just been saved a short time and you haven't won anybody to Christ one-on-one, -on -one, as I said. Be part of the team. Pray for people. Get in a prayer group and pray. When somebody says, we got so-and-so not saved and praying for him, or uh, somebody raises their hand on Sunday morning and they get saved or Thursday night Bible study, 
be part of that because the Bible says that we part alike. And in this definitive passage, we're going to look at eight key aspects of New Testament Bible-based soul winning. Now, let's read it. It's kind of a lengthy chapter uh, here, verse passage, 25 through 40, and look at it, and then I'm going to break it down for you section by section. Let's read in Acts chapter 8, verse 25. And they, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem and preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise, and go toward the south, unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority, under Condit's queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, who had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, read Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him, and heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shears, so open not he his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet, this of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, there came into a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And then when he come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found in at Zotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Now, I'm going to break this down into sections, and I'm going to point out these eight areas as we move uh, through them. Uh, so you'll want to be uh, ready to uh, get them down. Now, the first three areas that I want to look at, and you will find these, and I will make mention of them all the way through uh, as we come through this passage. You'll find all through here, and they're very important, is the fact that when it comes to soul winning, you must understand that there's three aspects of soul winning. And these are the first three things I want you to get. You're going to realize when you come through this passage here and other places that when it comes to soul winning, there's three aspects to it. Number one, there's a sowing aspect to it. Number two, there's a watering aspect to soul winning. And number three, there's a reaping concept to soul winning. Now, you'll remember when we started Proverbs chapter 11, we saw in verse 1 where the Bible says a false balance is an abomination in the sight of God. And I took a couple of weeks and laid out uh, what balance and how important it is. When it comes to soul winning, there's your balance. A balanced soul winner understands three things. He understands that in winning people to Christ, there's a sowing, there's a watering, and there is a reaping. Now, I'm going to explain these three, and then I'm going to we'll look at each one, and then we're going to move on to the other five, but I want you to see that. First of all, let's talk about sowing the Word of God. You realize that sometimes God just wants you to sow the Word and not win that person to Christ? That's foreign concept to most people today. All they can think about, all churches, not all people, uh, for the last 20, 30 years has been to win them to Christ, win them to Christ, win them to Christ. But I'm telling you, there's times in the Word of God and times in your life when God uh, doesn't want you to win that person. He just wants you to sow the Word of God. You see, a man getting saved, and I don't mean this in a wrong way because it does, but as far as what's going on inside him has nothing to do with you and me. Has nothing to do with you and I. We're just a delivery boy with a message that God has given us. Now, verse 31 says that we get recompense for that. God's going to bless us for it, get rewards for it. We know that. But salvation is in a man's heart based on what God's doing with him. And many times we forget this. Salvation with that man is not based on you and him. 
It's based on where he's at with God and what God is doing in his life at that particular time. And you and I have no idea what God is doing with him. There, there, there's, there's times when, when he's not ready to be saved yet. And all God wants us to do is to sow some seed and let God work it in and let God take some time and the Holy Spirit of God to work on it. And when a child of God is indifferent to the Holy Spirit of God, he keeps pushing it, he keeps pushing it, he keeps prying it. I've seen guys take a guy who didn't want to get saved and they just beat him and beat him and beat him. And many times it produces a false salvation. They get saved just to get you off their back. And of course, they never really get saved. I don't want to degrade Billy Graham for anything in the world. I think in many aspects of his life, he's done a lot of good things. And I, I'm the last guy in the world to, to criticize him. But I, I will tell you this. I, I tell you that I know early on, later on in the ministry, when all the other people got involved in it, they had such a desire for people to get saved. Now, that's a good thing. You had to have a desire to get people saved. And they had a desire to get people saved. But you've got to stay within limitations of the Bible. Their desire was so great that it overrode the principles of the Word of God. And so when they would give an invitation, and, and I know this to be true because I've been to several of their meetings where they take you into churches and they, they tell the people who are going to work with people down at the altar, and they tell them, once the music and the invitation starts at the end of the sermon, there's going to be a lot of people that are sitting there that may not feel comfortable with stepping out and coming forward. So I want all of the workers, probably a thousand people, I want all of the workers at that queue to get up and start moving down toward the front like you're going to get saved. That'll loosen up the crowd that they'll all get up and they'll move down and they'll get saved too. I have a simple rule that I follow. I've been in Baptist churches all my life when the end of the sermon and the guy gets up there, he wants to get saved people so bad. Hey, I do too. And I've seen him sing that famous old song, Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I... 35 stanzas. And when that doesn't do it, switch songs. Almost persuaded. See, that, that's supposed to finally get you. Now, I want to see people saved, but I follow a simple rule. You know what that rule is? I never want a person to get saved more than they want to get saved. Because when you do, then you have to result to trickery. Hey, when I give an invitation on Sunday morning, there's no music. Tabby doesn't play some soft, sweet song to melt your heart, bring tears to your eye, to bring you down. There's no pleading. I'll maybe sing two or three stanzas, come across the crowd once or twice, and then I'm off to McDonald's, man. There's no trickery. I've seen guys up there give an invitation, and nobody moved. And the guy said, Yes, I see that hand when there was no hand. I understand what he's trying to do. Get somebody out there that don't want to raise their hand to think somebody else raised their hand, then you'll raise your hand. Now, I'm going to talk to you a minute. If you want to get saved, get down the aisle and get saved. If God's Holy Spirit can't break your heart, if the preaching of the word of God can't dig down in your soul and just bust you loose, all my tricks of the trade are never going to get you saved. And there's times when God just wants us to sow, has no intention of us reaping. Now, number two, the second concept is watering. There's time when God after you sow the word of God, that God wants you to water. No, that's praying for people. Sometimes that's God what wants you to do. You sow the seed and then you water it. 
Now, the watering is in relationship, and boy, is this an absolute foreign concept to God's people. The, the, the watering is a reference to us weeping over lost people. Psalms 126, verse 6 says, He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seeds, shall doubtless come again, bringing his sheaves with him. You see, here's the problem. And I'm going to show you several problems today. I'll, I'll tell you where they're at. Here comes number one. The problem today is God's people have no tears left for the lost people. Now, I'll tell you why. You only got so many tears, and we waste most of them. We'll go see some movie, a late-night movie on TV, and we'll sit there all curled up, you know, with our popcorn and a blankie, and we're sitting there watching, you know, some sad movie. And you know how the old go, sad movies always make me cry. And you'll sit there and boo-hoo and weep. Man, I'll tell you what, you're sitting there watching two people in a movie or three people in a movie, and you're whining, crying, and they're fine. They're out in California someplace living high in a hall. They're not dead. You're wasting an expensive amount of tears on something that even even real. God's people today got no tears left for the lost. You know why? They spent all their tears on the bad relationships they've got themselves in. They've cried themselves to sleep tonight at night over some goofy girl, some bozo the clown guy. Some bug wit that couldn't even figure out life. They got no tears left. They spent it all on the bad relationships or many times the terrible choices that they've made. Oh, I've seen them cry and cry and cry. It was like their heart was going to come out their mouth. They were so broken over some of the bad choices that they made in life. I've seen them cry their eyes out because their kids were out in the world and not doing what was right. I've seen them cry their eyes dry over the trouble they have caused in their own house, Proverbs eleven twenty nine, And now they're reaping the whirlwind. And there's nothing left for unsaved people. That's why. But sometimes that's what God wants you to do. He wants you to sow. Then he wants you to water. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, he says, I have planted, Paul sowed. Then he says, Apollos watered, and God gave the increase. Somebody else got to win them to Christ. That's the process. You see how it works? Now, the third thing, and the third thing I want you to see is that, and sometimes God will use you to reap. He'll use you to win that person to Christ. I hear Christians all the time, you know, hey, I got so-and-so, got one to Christ, and I, I won this guy to Christ, and I've been praying for this guy a long time, and praise God, he got saved, and I got to win him to the Lord. That's all good, man. Don't ever lose that joy. Bible says there's joy in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. That's a good thing. But here's wisdom and understanding. In over 40-plus years of the ministry to people that I've won to Christ, I can tell you 100% of them, somebody else sowed and somebody else watered. I just got the blessing of reaping what somebody else did, and it's a team concept. And I don't know who sowed the word of God. I don't know who watered for how many years, but I do know this. At the judgment seat of Christ, we all part alike. This hardcore soul winning, this used car salesman mentality pressure and hammering somebody it's nothing more than a, and I've seen them all my life Christian cowboys that didn't like to put another notch on their pistol now here's the key to it all now this little tidbit here will eliminate 98% of soul winning today and the key is simply this knowing when to do what keep from reaping when God wants you just to sow, see? How keep from messing it up when God just want you to water? And how to know when now is the time to reap and not just to sow some more or to continue watering? That's a dilemma. And the answer to that dilemma is right here in our passage today that we're going to look at. And we'll see it in a minute. But as I said last week, 
God's Holy Spirit leading you and guiding you to make it abundantly clear what you're to do and when you're to do it. It comes right back to that intimate, personal relationship with the Holy Spirit and the Word of God that makes us sensitive to the working of the Holy Spirit, who is the one who will save him. It isn't you or me. You and I are just the instrument. It's the Holy Spirit of God that is going to be working in his life. Your job and my job is to get as close to that Holy Spirit that we can see the working and know exactly what he wants us to do. I've been in scenarios all my life when I'm telling somebody the gospel and I'm laying it out and I'll get to the point just as clear as the bell, man, the Holy Spirit says to me, that's it, you're done. Shut up. You gave him everything I wanted him to have. I've been preaching on Sunday morning and had no intention of giving an invitation. And I always just let the Holy Spirit of God tell most churches that they give one every time they do anything. And I found that I'm not against winning people to Christ. But you know what? I would rather have my ministry be dictated by the Holy Spirit of God. And I've been preaching at places and times where I had no intention. And right down at the end of that thing, boy, just like somebody coming up and whapping me alongside the head, the Holy Spirit of God said, shut up and give an invitation. I've seen some of you. First time I met you, God said to me, Bob, you see that guy? Bob, you see that gal? Well, you take them and you give them everything that they need. And you make sure that they get whatever they need when it comes to that Bible because they're profitable to me. And I'm telling you right now, you make sure you cross your T's and dot your I's and that kid gets everything that they need. And you don't even know it. And I have no idea what God's doing with you. I have no idea what his plan is. I'm just a soldier, and a soldier follows orders. Now, our study today will see all of this, plus five more. And this, as I said, is the definitive passage on soul winning. Now, let's get rolling here. Let's break it down. Let's look at verse 25 through 27. He says, and they, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem and preached the gospel in many villages of the Samarians. And the angel of the Lord, here it is, spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south unto Jerusalem, unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority, under Condens, queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasure who had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, the fourth thing, and this is the fourth thing I want you to see, and I want you to see it's found here in uh, these three verses. And it's going to be our two main characters. We have here an Ethiopian eunuch, and we have here a man named Philip. He's one of the deacons out of Acts chapter 7 or 6. And when the Holy Spirit of God does his work in both, When the Holy Spirit of God is doing the work in the Ethiopian eunuch and he's doing the work in Philip's life, then you have the fourth thing I want to talk to you about in soul winning is you have a prepared sinner and you also have a prepared servant. God was preparing Philip for this task all through his life and ministry. And you think when you come on Thursday night or Sunday morning or you disciple somebody or you get involved in this and get involved in that, how many times have you, have you looked at that and maybe you're tired and maybe you had a bad day and maybe this or that and you think to yourself, maybe I best not go tonight. And maybe sometimes you don't come. And yet, I'm telling you, you think it's just a church service. You think it's just a Bible study. Hey, in everything God does in your life, he's preparing you to be a prepared servant. It may be in that Bible study, one thing you hear when you don't hear anything else that God wanted you to have that you're going to use over here. God has prepared servants and he has prepared sinners. 
God was preparing Philip for that task all through his life. And God was preparing the sinner through the things in his life. And now by the working of the Holy Spirit of God, God has gotten the prepared servant. Now listen to me. He, the Holy Spirit of God working in Philip's life and the eunuch's life has gotten now the prepared servant to the prepared sinner. Now let me tell you the second problem we got today. And boy, this is for true. We got more prepared sinners than we got prepared servants. That's the problem today. The proof of that is 99% of God's people been saved for five years or more. They couldn't take a Bible and open it up and win somebody to Christ if their life depended on it. They couldn't discern when the Holy Spirit of God is talking to them. I mean, they have no clue. Now think about that. Let that sink in. Some things will really define a Christian. And boy, nothing defines a child of God quicker than a lack of a burden for souls. And you think about that, and it's even worse that some of God's people don't even care. Now let me show you the fifth thing. And it's still in these verses here. Verse 25. I want to show you the fifth thing is Philip has the right attitude. You know, attitude is an incredible thing. All of us probably throughout the day need attitude adjustments. Some of you probably need them this morning. Ace last night, where's Ace at? Is he here this morning? He was making fun of me last night because I didn't hit a home run in the softball. I assured him that even though I did not hit a home run last night, I would definitely hit one this morning. <laughs> He's probably out in the parking lot waiting for it to come out through the roof so he can catch it. But the fifth thing I want you to see, our prepared servant here, Philip, he has the right attitude. Look at verse 25. And when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem and preached the gospel in many villages of the Samarians. Now, I don't know, as I said, what you know about the Bible, but we're in a progression here in Acts. And here in Acts chapter 8, something has happened that has never happened before. The gospel has now went to the Samarians. Now, I don't know what you know about the Samarians, but they were half Jew and half Gentile that came into being way back when Shennacherib came down and tried to bleed out the Jewish race by bringing the Gentiles in. And the Jews didn't like them, and they didn't like the Jews. In fact, God made it clear in Matthew chapter 10 when the apostles went out not to go into Samaria. Now the gospel has come to Samaria. And a great revival has broken out. And Philip, he's the key evangelist. Thousands of people are getting saved, and it's a great revival. And the one man that is in charge of it all is Philip, and God comes down and takes him out of that great revival and sends him on the backside of the desert to one man. He never blinks or hesitates. He never tries to tell God, you got to think this through. Well, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but I'm having a great revival down in Samaria. I'm the keynote speaker. Well, I got my big screens up down there, and I'm, I'm really going to town. And now you want me to pull me out out of this great revival, put me all the way across over there in the Gaza desert to one guy when I'm so important where I'm at. He doesn't even hesitate. He never even blinks. He never tries to tell God how he's needed back in Samaria. He simply goes. You see, he's one with the Spirit of God. He's in total obedience. He simply follows orders. Now, I wouldn't mention any names because I've given that up in my life because people just get mad at me about it. So I'm trying to please everybody today in my life when he's... Next month, I'll be 65, and 
I'm turning over a new leaf. When I was a young man growing up in my 30s, there was a young evangelist. He's now a pastor of a church over in Kansas someplace, Lenexer, one of those places. And uh, he grew up in a, in, a, in a Youth for Christ organization, and he was a, he was a decent speaker, fair-haired, good-looking kid. And uh, they took him, and they saw the opportunity, and they molded him into a, a great evangelist for their organization. He, being smarter than them, used them and realized that the real money and the real popularity and real fame was moving into churches. So he became a really hot evangelist. And he preached for four or five years. He preached for four or five years where, I mean, he just went from church to church and everybody wanted this guy. Everybody wanted him. And he got so arrogantly proud and so puffed up that he actually thought that his ministry was so valuable and he had only something that God had given only him that he told pastors that I will not come to your city and come to your church unless you guarantee me 5,000 people in attendance because my ministry is just way too important to waste on anything less than that. Listen, our only value to God and importance to God is that you obey what he tells you to do and go where he calls you to go. Other than that, what's the point? We live in a Christianity day where we all think we know more than the Holy Spirit of God does. You get to the point where you think you're so valuable to God that you can't expend your preaching on less than 5,000 people. You got a serious problem. Your house is probably filled with mirrors. Your parents probably worried many, many years that you could never get married because you'd never find anybody that loved you as much as you did. Luke 6, 46 says, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Here he called one man to go to one man, and the one guy was the keynote speaker in a great revival. If we get so arrogant about who we are that we think we're so invaluable to God, I'm telling you something. God will pull you out and take you anywhere he wants you to go. Your job and my job is to go. Now look at verse 27, our prepared sinner here. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Condence, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, had come to Jerusalem for to worship. Now, to me, this is phenomenal. And it's a great principle in how God deals with men. And uh, I don't know if you figured it out yet, but this Ethiopian eunuch is a black man from Africa. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but you know that there's four black men in the New Testament. And they're one of the most incredible studies anywhere in the Bible because they are the four key examples found in the Word of God of dealing with one, salvation, two, ministry, and the other one, the New Testament local church. And boy, if you're a racial bigot, you've got a time with that. And now he's going to Jerusalem to worship. And that's interesting. Now remember, this guy knew nothing about Jesus Christ. He knows nothing about the cross of Calvary. He knows nothing about that Jesus has come and died on the cross. He knows nothing about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ or salvation through the blood. He's from Africa, Ethiopia. He's headed to Jerusalem to worship. And I'm telling you right now, that's based on what he had been told and raised up from when the Queen of Sheba, some 900 years before, had made her journey to Solomon. You remember 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 111? Queen of Sheba comes into Jerusalem to see the glory of God in Solomon's temple. And she looks at all of that and she says, wow. She says, I've never seen anything in all of my life that majesty and the splendor of God and his people and this nation. And she goes back to her nation and tells everybody about the glory she saw in Jerusalem. And 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29 and 30 talks about the fame of God's glory spreading through all the nations. That old boy, 900 years plus 
heard about that, wanted to have some kind of relationship with God, believed in his heart what he had heard, and now he's on his way to Jerusalem to worship. Even though going to Jerusalem and worshiping is absolutely worthless. Psalm 78, kingdom of heaven's gone, man. You can go to Jerusalem all you want and worship 24-7 and die and go to hell. But here's the principle. Oh, it's a great one. And it answers a lot of questions about God dealing with men. You see, this guy is going by the light that he had. And he's being faithful in that. And God has to bless him based on the light that once was the true light that he's following and then gets him to a point and prepares him and then gets him the gospel where he needs it to get him straightened out. You saw the same things in Acts chapter 19 with, with Apollos. He comes into the church and he starts talking about John's baptism. Quill and Priscilla pulled him aside and say, oh, that doesn't work anymore and gave him the gospel. Look at verse 28 was returning and sitting in his chariot, read Isaiah the prophet. Ah, here we come. Three aspects, sowing, watering, and reaping. Here it is. He's sitting in the tailgate of his chariot, Ford 150. And he's reading a portion of the prophet Isaiah. Now somebody, somewhere, sowed that seed and has been watering. I don't know who. It's not mentioned in the Bible or where or when or how. The details aren't given. But some old boy was putting out portions of Isaiah, in particular Isaiah 53, which is a prophecy on the coming Messiah suffering and dying on the cross and shedding his blood. Somebody sowed. Somebody was watering. Now Philip's going to get to reap. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 24 says they're all going to part alike. Three parts to soul winning. Look at verse 29 through 33. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he says, How can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he should, would come up and sit with him. And the place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb dumb before his shear, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. The Bible says, Then spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. That ever happened to you? Could you even discern when it's God's Holy Spirit talking to you? Can you even tell when it's God is trying to tell you something? Or do you even know how that process works? I don't have time to get into it this morning. That's a great Bible study question on Thursday night. But do you even know how God does it? Do you think that you get that still, small voice down inside you? Well, Lizzie Borden had that, and she hacked her mom and her dad together with an axe. That ain't going to work. You have to have something outside of you, yet that is inside of you, that gives you the principle that tells you exactly what to do in any given situation. I stated earlier, a thousand times, boy, God has showed me somebody and said, that kid's going to do something for God. You make sure you get him what he needs. You go join thyself to that chariot. Now look at verse 30. Here's our sixth aspect. Philip has a desire to do what God wants him to do. In our study on Proverbs 11, verse 23, I showed you the desire of the righteous is to do good. He runs. He doesn't walk. He doesn't say, okay, I'll be there in a minute. He runs because he's got a desire to do what God wants him to do. He doesn't hesitate a second. You know, there's some things you don't have to pray about. And when God speaks to you and tells you what to do, you don't have to say, well, let me pray about that. You go do what he's told you to do. Our indecision on what to do for God is clearly an indication we don't hear him when he's speaking, can't discern his voice. 
He runs to the work of God. He runs to the prepared center. Hey, I want to tell you something. If I've learned anything in 40 plus years of ministry, and this is the honest truth, if I have learned anything dealing with people all of my life and watching them and building churches and winning people to Christ and helping young men and young ladies and moms and dads get the word of God down, if I've learned anything, I've learned that in churches, there's two kind of people. There are those who will run to do everything that God wants them to do. And there's those who will run away from everything that God wants them to do. And they're both in church every Sunday. You got some of God's people that every time they see an opportunity, they're running to it. Others that every time there's an opportunity, they're running from it. I had a lab one time, a Labrador retriever. I've had a lot of labs, but I had one. My first one was a black lab. Her name was Tinker. Tinker was the ball-playingest dog on the planet. Nobody, I never took her out and trained her with the ball. She was born with a radar sense of let's play ball. And I would take her up. This was before the house was built next to me and nothing was built behind me and there was this big field. And I'd take her up there every morning and I'd throw a tennis ball. And I'll tell you what, about 20 minutes of that, my arm, I decided to get a tennis racket. And, I, and I'd whack that thing and she'd run after it and bring it back. And she'd bring it up right up to my feet. She'd put it down to my feet, push it with her nose, and then get back ready to go again. <laughs> the intensity in her eyes was unbelievable. That dog, there's times that she was so hot in the summer that she'd bring that ball back, her tongue got hanging all the way down to her leg, and she'd just roll over and roll down the hill. She was so tired. (laughs) She was the ball-playingest dog I ever saw in my life. And I would would take it, you know, and I I would hit it. And after a while, she didn't want to go chase it. She wanted to get between where me and Zach is. And I'd take that thing, and I'd just tap it. She'd catch it. Bring it back up, put it down. The longer we went, the more irritated I got. So I hit a little bit harder. The more she liked it. I mean, there was times when I hit that thing as hard as I could. She is 10 feet away, and it sounded like Willie Mays hitting a ball out of the ballpark. Whop! She'd bring that ball up, and her gums were bleeding sometime. It, and she never stopped. She never lost that intensity. She never missed the ball. It wasn't like it bouncing and she caught it. She was into it. Boy, I've thought about that old pooch many, many times in my own relationship with the Lord. And boy, I said, as an old Gentile dog, oh God, just let me keep my eye on the ball of unsaved men and let the intensity in my heart be the intensity of your heart and never let me miss an opportunity to catch a soul on the way to hell. And then in verse 30, here's the classic line. Understandest thou what thou readest? And the old Ethiopian eunuch says, well, how can I except some man should guide me? And the Bible says, he desired Philip to come up and sit with him. You see, God uses men to reach other men. We're the instrument that God uses. God wants to prepare you. God wants to get you ready. And while you're here this morning and you're soaking this up, and some of you are like my little tinker, your intensity is right there. I guarantee you, somewhere in Kansas City or around this country or around this world, God is preparing some lost sinner, and the Holy Spirit of God wants to bring you and them together. Acts chapter 8. You know, God has an easier time with the prepared sinners than he does with the prepared servants. Prepared sinners got nothing to lose. He's lost everything. We got everything, get satisfied with it, and don't care about the ones who have nothing. Will you be that man? Will you be the prepared servant for the prepared sinner? Verse 31 says that he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. Now, I don't know if you saw this or not, but there's two desires here. The unsaved man has a desire to be saved. The saved man has a desire to get him saved. And in both cases, the Holy Spirit of God is orchestrating the event. And here's the next problem we have today. And it's really simple. It's not complicated at all. 
God has many unsaved people who have a desire to be saved, but very few Christians who have a desire to help get them saved. We won't go where we need to go and do what we need to do. Our Christianity is just too complacent. We don't want to be bothered. We don't want to get involved in things that may get our hands dirty. We don't want to go someplace that isn't up to our standards. And yet, boy, I'll tell you what, old Philip left the grandeur of that great revival to the backside of the desert where there wasn't anything. Look at verse 32 through 35. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth? And the eunuch answered in Philip and said, I pray thee of whom speaketh the prophet, this of himself or some other man. Oh, then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. You see, God's Holy Spirit never misses, never misses it. The place here found is the greatest passage of the Old Testament that prophetically talks about Christ coming and dying on the cross. Isaiah 53, verses 1 and 12, is the blood atonement, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Isaiah 53, 7 says that he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. It also says that like a lamb he was dumb before his shears, so he opened not his mouth. The writer of Acts says, in his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare a generation for his life is taken away? That's a good question. That's a great question. Who here today will declare his generation to a lost world? That's the question. The eunuch, the, the eunuch says, verse 34, who's he talking about here? I don't get it. Help me. Will you please show me? Oh, 1 Corinthians 2.14, how the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Ah, he can't get it. They're not known unto him because they're spiritually discerned. You see, some man needs to guide him. And that man is guided, that guides him, is guided by the guidance of the Holy Spirit of God. Then Philip opened his mouth, began at the same scripture, and preached unto him Jesus. Now, that's the greatest place in the Bible that shows you what preaching really is. See, you guys think that you got to be a, uh, that I'm a preacher. And I preach. But every Christian ought to be a preacher. You think because I'm up here behind this pulpit, you know, that, that that's what a preacher is. No, 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 no. You don't see Philip, uh, him saying, well, I, who's this guy? And Philip says, well, I'll tell you, but let me get it set up first. I got to have a pulpit here. I'll have a pulpit. And just um, uh, sing a couple songs. Okay, we got that down. And uh, uh, you, you're charge of all her money just take up an offering uh, just get that all worked out uh, no 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 announcements he just begins at the same scripture he's reading and there's a great key in that and where to start with somebody but we don't have time today he just takes the same scripture where he's reading and he preaches unto him jesus every man every woman every child in this building if you're saved ought to be a preacher telling men and women the story of christ is preaching I didn't say you need to be a pastor. I said you need to be a preacher. Telling them what Jesus has done for them by telling them what he's done for you. Then the seventh thing. This will be verse 36 through 39. And as they went on their way, there came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, if thou believe with all thy heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when he would come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Now, this is a great picture here. A lot of confusion on this today. Notice our picture here is so complete. God wants to make sure that you understand the difference between being saved and being baptized. There are a lot of people today that believe that you get saved by being baptized. And I want you to notice in the text here, the guy asked the question, what doth hinder me to be baptized? You know what Philip said? If you're saved, then you can be baptized. He didn't say you get baptized to be saved. 
He said, what doth hinder me to be baptized? It's simple, pal. If you believe that he died for you, but Isaiah 53 said, and you're saved, you can be saved. You can be baptized. That's how it works. You get saved, you get baptized. That's a simple concept. I've seen people all my life say they got saved and then say, well, you know, I need to pray about baptism. What? Everybody in that Bible, when they got saved, they got baptized. There wasn't any praying about it. They understood the importance, what it represents, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's not something that you pray about. In the book of Acts, everybody who got saved did three things. They got saved, then they got baptized, then they joined a New Testament church. Now, I want you to notice that even the method of baptism is covered. A lot of confusion on that. Somebody said one time, do you, do you immerse or do you sprinkle? I said, well, I said, we, we bury them. Bury in the likeness of Jesus' death, raised in the likeness of his glorious resurrection. Well, do you immerse or do you sprinkle? And I said, you ever been to a funeral? For well, sure. When they buried the guy, they put him in a corner and throw dirt in his face. They put him under the ground. They bury him. So when we baptize somebody because it represents the death, buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection, we put him under the water. Now, it says here, Philip says, or the Ethiopian says, here is much water. Now, that's a clue that you needed to have a lot of water. You're in the desert. You think they didn't have a canteen? You think that he, baptism was sprinkling? He could have just said, pull over here. Got a gatane in and foofed him a couple of times. He said, here is much water. These movies I see at Easter time, they're always got a Roman Catholic, somebody behind the scenes directing it, you know, keeping it along the biblical thing, you know. And the funniest thing I ever saw, here's Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist. He's down in the River Jordan, up to here. And John's sprinkling him. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> what is that? <laughs> what do you do? Your feet need water? You're up to here in the water, in the River Jordan, and a goofy guy is... <laughs> Jesus went into Jordan because he went under and came up. They got to have much, and it says they went down into the water, and then it says they come up out of the water. He got immersed. People are weird, man. And you think I'm weird. <laughs> then the Bible says in verse 39 the eunuch goes his way rejoicing. He's saved, man. He ran home and told his wife and all the little other eunuchs that he was saved. He told everybody, I'm saved, saved, born again. I met the Savior. Then the eighth thing, verse 40. But Philip was found in Azotus. Passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. This is probably really the most important thing. And that is the job of a prepared servant, a soul winner. You just move on to the next mission. Job of a soul winner is never over. His job is taking his temple to the lost world, wherever God's Holy Spirit leads him. He's a prepared servant with a prepared message. And he's looking to the leading of the Holy Spirit of God to direct him from place to place to a prepared sinner. This church is here, ladies and gentlemen, for one reason, is to prepare you. You may think that this class or this or what we do here is not important. Everything is important because every little piece God will take and prepare you for what he wants you to do and what he wants you to be. God wants you to be prepared. Some people come to this church because they want to be prepared. Some people come to this church, stay for a little while, and then they leave. You know why? It's simple. Because they don't want to be prepared. It's not hard. It's not complicated. It's the difference between a comfortable Christianity and a sacrificial Christianity. But the key to our preparedness is to be all 
for us to run by desire when that spirit speaks to us. When God gives this church something to do and you're involved in it, it's the attitude by which you do it, running to get it done, making sure everything is put in its right order and getting it done. But the key to our preparedness is to be able and the ability to run by desire when the Spirit speaks to us. And it requires you and me to understand and be able to discern when it's the Spirit of God speaking to you or just your own spirit because of what you want to do. Years ago, a couple of guys took me out raccoon hunting. And I'll tell you, I don't think there's any experience hunting like there is when you really do it the right way, hunting raccoons. He had four or five dogs. They were the best dogs you ever saw in your life. And I don't know if you've ever done it or not or know how it goes, but that old boy had hunted with those dogs so much that he could tell the different dogs by the way they howled and the way they barked. To me, they were all the same. And uh, we're out there, you know, and what happens is you go out there, you get out in the woods, and you got the dogs, and they're going crazy already, and then you unleash four or five dogs at the same time. You can just stand there. And boy, them dogs are moving down through the hollows, and they're moving up the ridges and down through there. They're looking for a raccoon. But they're all staying together. And boy, they're, they're baying, and they're blubbering, and they're, oh, 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 and they're going all over the place. <laughs> and I'm standing there, man, and he's saying, that's old blue. He's saying, that's red. Red's hot on it. He's saying, oh, Sally, she's right there with him. Boy, old Deacon, he never misses it. And they all sound the same to me. Just a bunch of dogs out for a great time on a Saturday night at the raccoon's expense. But he could tell where they were and what they were doing by the way they howled and barked. And I mean, it was incredible. And we're sitting there, and finally everything kind of, the damage kind of changed. Their pitches went up. They started really going into it. And he says, they're on the trail now. They're after one. Now, we're probably a half a mile away. But on a clear November night, boy, those barking dog, howling dog, wailing dog, whatever they're doing, man, they are sending out a signal. And after he's sitting there listening, and they're laughing among themselves, and they're talking about what these dogs by name are doing by how they're howling. Finally, he says, they got him treed. Let's go. Got him treed? Man, what, we, where are we going? It's 11 o'clock at night. It's pitch block. I can't see the hand in my front of my face. There's five dogs out there, and they're all got something treed. Now, my luck, I'll get there first. It'll be a 900-pound grizzly bear who decided to <laughs> go up the tree, let the dog chase him till I got there. But we go. I shine my light up, boy, and there was the biggest old mama raccoon I ever saw. She had to be about 40 pounds. She was just up there, and she was starving. She was, she was not happy. Them dogs were trying to jump up that tree, and they were going around that tree. And they're going crazy. And he's hooking them all up. Deacon, Sally, you know, red, blue, get over here. You know, he's tying them all up, and they're holding them down. And they obviously shot the coon, and the coon fell down, and, and that was the end of that. But... That old boy could discern the howls of those five different dogs and know what they were saying and who was saying what. You know, years later, after I got saved, I often thought of that cold November night. And in my heart, I, I asked God to do for me what he allowed that old boy to do with his dogs. I said, Lord, take this old dog and, and, and help me to discern your voice from all the other distractions in life that can all sound alike. Teach me the difference between religion and the Bible. Teach me the difference between theology and truth. Teach me and show me the voice of good doctrine versus bad doctrine. And make me to hear clearly, Lord, what is only of you. And he did. And he will do it for you. A prepared sinner and a prepared servant. And you know, it's like everything else in our Christian life. Choice is up to us. You either spend the rest of your life 
running to the things of God or you'll spend the rest of your life running from the things of God. It's just that simple. I think Psalms 142 verse 4, if you don't have it in your Bible, you ought to have it. I think it's the saddest place in the Bible. It really puts the capstone on our message today, which shows the lock of burden for lost souls. He said in Psalm 142, verse 4, this was of a lost man speaking. I looked on my right hand and beheld there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. Prepared servants, prepared sinners. And Proverbs 11.30 says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. Let's pray.